And if you notice, chapter 37 begins with Hezekiah in the house of the Lord. He is praying. And of course, he is praying in response to what happened in chapter 36, that long dreaded day, the day of invasion, the day that they have schemed and, and, and worked and, and tried their best to avoid, that day has come upon them. It was a day of disaster. And Hezekiah had nothing else to do. He had no other recourse, no other a solution left. And so he goes into the house of the Lord and he prays. And there, the Lord hears Hezekiah's prayers and he preserves not only Hezekiah's life, but he preserves the lives of his people. That's how chapter 37 begins. But notice how chapter 37 ends. Chapter 37 ends with the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, in the house of his god, Nisroch. There he is praying, but his god, Nisroch, cannot keep him safe. In the house of his god, Nisroch, Sennacherib is murdered. And in between these two bookends, on the one hand, the king of Judah praying in the house of the Lord, and the Lord hears his prayers and saves him. And on the other hand, the king of Assyria praying in his god's temple, but that god is unable to keep Sennacherib's life. In between these two bookends, we have detailed records, recordings of Hezekiah's prayers. In fact, prayer is the central theme of this chapter. And so that is what we are going to focus uh, this morning. And the first thing we see is Hezekiah's prayers. Uh, we have two prayers of Hezekiah here. Uh, first, uh, Somewhat implied, but we can see the content of his prayers by what follows. And the second prayer, which is spelled out in great detail. So when we look at these two prayers together, a pattern emerges, which is what biblical, what true and godly prayer looks like. So let's take a look. Uh, once again, from chapter 36... It was the dreaded four day that has come upon them. And the mocking words of the uh, Rabshakeh, uh, Sennacherib's lackey, it left Hezekiah utterly shaken and shook him to his inner core. And in the beginning of chapter 37, we find Hezekiah out of options. He is out of time, and he is out of hope. And at last... Hezekiah turns to God in prayer. And what's amazing is that what Hezekiah could not achieve through military, what Hezekiah could not achieve through diplomacy, remember how he went and made a covenant with Egypt, but that failed. And what Hezekiah could not achieve through money, remember how Hezekiah sent bribe uh, money to Assyria to keep them from coming against Jerusalem. What Hezekiah could not achieve through military, through diplomacy, through money, he achieves through prayer. That's what we need to see here. And recognize that until now, seeking God in prayer was low on Hezekiah's priority list. 
He had plan A, which was military. He had plan B, which was diplomacy with Egypt. He had plan C, which was sending money to Assyria. And I'm sure there were many other plans after that. And you get the sense that praying to God was really far down the list. But now, Hezekiah is at a point where all his schemes have failed, and praying is the only thing he can do. But it turns out, the only thing that he could do was actually the best thing that he could do. And so we find Hezekiah in the beginning of chapter 37 uh, wearing sackcloth. And of course, you know what that means. He is in the house of the Lord in sackcloth. And wearing sackcloth before God is the, the Old Testament typical sign of repentance, expressing deep grief before the Lord. And we see something here in Hezekiah's demeanor and prayer, what repentance is supposed to be. Notice how it's not, nothing of Hezekiah's prayers is about me. But rather, Hezekiah's prayers has a very interesting focus because repentance means seeing sin not merely as something that brings a shame upon the sinner, but repentance requires and it involves seeing sin as something that casts a shadow on God's glory. And so if you listen to Hezekiah's prayers, it's not about what is happening to him, but Hezekiah prays, Lord, They have defiled your name. Why? Well, the Assyrians are there because of the unbelief and the sins of the kings of Judah. And Hezekiah knows that. And the sackcloth that he's wearing attests to that. It represents that he is in full awareness of the part that he played in the tragedy that has come upon Judah. And yet, nevertheless, in his repentance, he sees beyond, uh, beyond himself and knows that sin has not only brought shame and difficulties upon him, the sinner, but he sees that sin has cast a shadow on God's glory. And so, verse 4, he prays, It may be that the Lord your God, he's sending word to Isaiah, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. You remember from last chapter, Sennacherib's lackey, the Rabshakeh, he made the Lord out to be no different than the useless and the impotent idols of the defeated nations. And he was saying for all people to hear, no other nation's gods were able to protect them from the might and the will of Assyria. Do you really think that your God, your Lord, is any different? Abandon all hope. That was the message. And now Hezekiah is saying, God, he has uttered these blasphemous things against you. He has mocked you. 
Won't you please do something? Because should Jerusalem fall before Assyria, it would only prove the mocking words of Rabshaka true. And so if you notice here, Hezekiah's prayer is not about his personal success, but it is about God's name. And in response to the prayer, God gives an answer. Verse 7, God says, I will put a spirit in him, in Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And indeed, that's exactly what God did. Now, the full fulfillment of God's promises takes time to be fully realized. Specifically, it takes 20 years. And I'll explain that to you a little later. But as God begins to fulfill his promises, the first thing that happens is the Sennacherib, who had been about third, who had been stationed about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem in Lachish, he hears a dangerous rumor. And the rumor that he hears is that the king of Cush, Nubia, uh, in the southern part of Egypt, was uh, way, beginning to wage war against Assyria. And Sennacherib does not want to get involved in a prolonged, drawn-out war in Palestine, and he ends up retreating. But as he begins his retreat, he sends word once again to Jerusalem. Verse 10, he says, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given to the hands of the kings of Assyria. And that precipitates Hezekiah's second prayer, and we read it from verse 16 and on. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. You remember the Ark of the Covenant, the box in which was contained the copies of God's law? That box had a lid, a golden lid, and upon the lid were fashioned two cherubim with their wings touching one another. And in the center of the cherubim was understood to be the place where God rests his feet. So his throne literally covers the words and the letters of the law, hides the demands of God's law from his own view, and upon that lid, upon the cherubim, the blood of the sacrifices were sprinkled. And it makes a very graphic point, doesn't it? It is saying that God has provided a sacrifice whereby sinners receive mercy before God. So that is the mercy seed. And God is the God who dwells and who is enthroned among the cherubim. And so what Hezekiah is doing is that he is grounding his prayer on God's mercy. You see, he has no other choice because Hezekiah is finding himself in this predicament precisely as the result of his own sins and the sins of his own fathers. Generation after generation, they ignore the word of God. Generation after generation, they scorn God's prophet. 
And rightly, we could say everything that is happening to them, they deserve. And so there is no way that Hezekiah can come before God and say, God, I've been faithful to you. I've been good to you. You owe me your help. He can't do that because that is simply not true. And so the only thing that Hezekiah can count on is God's mercy. And that is what he is grounding his prayers on. And he is saying, God, I know that I have no right to ask you for anything. I know that I have proven myself over and over of how undeserving I am of your grace. But right now, I have nothing to lean on. I have no other recourse but to rely on your mercy. And guess what? Hezekiah needed no other reason than that. Because God indeed is the God of mercy. And God is indeed one who glorifies his name in the mercy that he shows his people. And God's zeal for his glory makes him eager and glad to help the needy. It's not about what they deserve. So long as his people come to him and ask for mercy, it moves his heart to give them mercy. And so where Hezekiah had no rationale, no merit, no reason to expect God's help, he comes and he relies on God's mercy, and that is exactly what he receives. And that brings us to the deliverance. And in verse 9, we are told what God will do. He sends word through the prophet Isaiah to Sennacherib, because you have raged against me and your complacency, your arrogance has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose. It's a matter of historical record that the Assyrians, when they would conquer a nation, they would take away the captives by putting hooks in people's nose, and they would link them with ropes, and they would drag people away into captivity as they would drag cattle. It was an inhumane, cruel way of treating people. And now what is the Lord saying? Because you have raged against me, because you have been arrogant before me, I will put my hook in your nose. Ever, God measures with the measure that we use. And Assyria treated her captives as cattle. Now God is going to humiliate Assyria. And he says, further, I will put my bit in your mouth. Now that's uh, what you do with horses, isn't it? And that illustrates the inner workings of God's sovereignty and the antics of the sinful people. Um, One commentator puts it this way, and I think very brilliantly. All the energy, the brute strength, even violence, belong to the horse. All the wisdom, discretion, purposefulness, the guiding touch, belong to the rider. 
And that's the inner workings, that's the secret uh, behind God's sovereignty on the one hand and the sinful antics on, uh, of, of rebels on the other hand. Sinners rage and do what comes naturally to them. But it is God who guides them, gives purpose to their actions. And so God keeps his promise in verse 36. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. This was such a devastating loss that made Sennacherib retreat to Nineveh. And from there, he was never again able to mount another assault on Judah. See, that's what God promised. They, he will never come into Jerusalem. I will save the city, and that's what God did. Now, Sennacherib lives for another 20 years. But as he was praying in the temple of his own uh, God, he was assassinated by his own uh, two sons. Now, if you think about that, that's an ironic turn of events, isn't it? It's almost delicious, actually. Because it was Sennacherib who boasted that the Lord could not protect Hezekiah. What happened? It was actually Nisroch, his God, who could not protect him. And so, prayer did for Hezekiah what weapons could not do. Prayer achieved for Hezekiah what diplomacy could not do. And prayer did for Hezekiah what money could not do. Do you see that? But it's also at the same time important to recognize that Hezekiah's prayer did not cause God to come up with a solution in the nick of time. You know, sometimes people say things like this, and I think at least some of the times when they say things like this, they're a little bit confused. They say, I believe in the power of prayer. Right? At least some of the times when they say things like that, they are confused because the assumption is the prayer itself has the power. The power is not in the prayer. The power is in the sovereign God who has purposed and who is carrying out his will. And so, look at verse 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. You see, everything that happened is what God is doing in, in the fulfillment of his eternal purposes. And he, God, had already planned of old the deliverance of Judah, the deliverance of Hezekiah. And this is the mystery. It's not that Hezekiah prayed and that God was moved at the last minute to come up with the solution in the, in the nick of time. Rather, the mystery of prayer is that God brings his eternal counsels to pass through the prayers of his people. The power is not in prayer, but in God, 
in God who has purposed to exalt his name in the mercy that he shows his people. That's why Hezekiah's prayers could do for him what weapons could not do, what diplomacy, politics could not do, what money could not do, because God had purposed long ago to glorify his own name by showing mercy to his people. And so loved ones, never think, never think of praying to your sovereign God as an insignificant thing that you do only because you can't do anything better. Sometimes I hear that from elderly people, people who are ill, people who otherwise find themselves uh, unable to do anything else. And they sometimes uh, tell me, uh, you know, the only thing I can do is pray. And I, say, and I just try to say this nicely. And I say, what do you mean the only thing you can do is pray? <laughs> Don't you know, your prayer is more valuable, more powerful than anything that you can do for God. Prayer is not something that we do just because we can't do anything else that's more interesting or meaningful. Rather, God is accomplishing his eternal purposes through your prayers. And as you pray, you become simultaneously God's partner and the means by which he glorifies himself. And so don't think, don't ever think that when the only thing that you can do is pray, don't ever think that's not enough. Don't ever think that you are somehow a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Don't ever think that you have outlived your usefulness. As you pray, you are God's partners, you are his instruments, and through your prayers, God is accomplishing his holy and good purposes. And so, pray with full confidence in the God who has planned from ages before to glorify his name by showing you mercy. That's the deliverance. And finally, we come to the house of the Lord. It's, it's ironic and it's delicious in that Hezekiah is in the house of his God, and he prays, and his prayers are heard. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he is in the house of his God. His prayers are in vain, useless, and his God is nowhere to be found. And that tells you something. The house of the Lord is where guilty and hopeless people go to find life and new beginning. Does that mean that we are somehow at a, a disadvantage because we no longer have access to the temple in Jerusalem? By no means. Because the Jerusalem temple was, was a mere shadow of the true and the better temple. Because Jesus, he is the true house of the Lord, because it is in Jesus that the fullness of God's glory dwells, because it is Jesus that covers our guilt and our shame. It is Jesus who is God's mercy 
to us. It is Jesus who reigns over us from the throne of grace, throne of mercy. And it is in Jesus that sinners like you and I, we find the fullest measure of mercy. And the only thing that Jesus requires of us is that you and I see our need and come to him. Come to him for mercy and come to him for help. You and I cannot argue with Jesus. You and I, have we have nothing to convince him that, will, that says, you know, we deserve your help. As a matter of fact, everything in our record and our lives tell us precisely the opposite, that we deserve God's wrath. We have no argument by which we can convince him to bless us. The only thing that we can do is lean on his mercy, and that is enough. Because the only thing that Jesus requires of us is to come to him and say, I need help. I need the mercy that I don't deserve. I need the grace that I don't deserve. I need the love that I don't deserve. And for that, Jesus will give us mercy and grace. And so I ask you, is Jesus the first one you seek or the last one you seek? You know, this may be true both in the realm of our salvation. Some people, they think they, they can go to heaven, they can be right with God by being good people. You have your plan A, you have your plan B, you have your plan C. And maybe somewhere long down the list there is Jesus, but you'll never come to that because you are trusting in your own plans. This is how I'm going to live my life. This is, these are the charities that I'm supporting. This is uh, the, the kind of philosophy that I'm living with, and this is how I'm going to save myself. Uh, one day, all of your schemes will fail. One day, you will see how utterly bankrupt and empty and, and futile your efforts were to save yourself. But you can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have no other hope, but you are able to save me, and he will give you mercy. But this is equally true in our lives as we deal with our crises. We face many trials difficulties in life. And when you do, is Jesus the first one you seek or the last one you seek? When you are dealing with crises, you might have a mindset that says, you know, my problems are bigger than God. There's nothing that God can do about this. You realize that's precisely what Sennacherib said about the Lord to Hezekiah. Your problems are bigger than your God. There's nothing that God can do for you. So where do you turn when you are facing difficulties, crises, trials in your life? Do you turn to Jesus first, or do you have your plans A, B, C, and somewhere a long way down the list, there's Jesus? But let's be honest, practically speaking, you never get there, do you? But Jesus... He is your help and He is your salvation. There's nothing that is too difficult for Jesus. 
There's nothing that keeps Jesus from showing you mercy except our pride. As soon as we humble ourselves, as, we, as soon as we say to Jesus, I need your help, I need your mercy, I need your grace, Jesus will do it. And so pray boldly. None of us have a right to be heard, but that is not why Jesus hears us. Uh, he is so merciful that he is deeply moved to see us suffer and in need. When we find ourselves out of time, out of options, and out of hope, Jesus knows our heartaches, and he will help us. So, pray to him. Receive from him. And that is how he glorifies his name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending us your son, Jesus, in whom you dwell with us in mercy and to whom we can go and find grace and help in our time of need. And so we pray, O oh Father, our daily lives are beset with many trials, many obstacles, and we, we live with broken hearts. O oh Father, give us mercy. Help us. We have no one else. We have no other resource. And so we look to you, and we know that that is enough. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.